0: And we're going to start in about one minute. I know church didn't let out late and there is a VBS meeting going on, but we'll start in about one minute. Um, we'll read our verse together. If you can read together with me. Mark six thirty-four. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We've been working the last several weeks on follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Lou's pieces have been. And this one really is no different. And this is the conclusion, if you'll recall last time I think Charles was speaking and uh, we got crunched a little bit and it was about 30 minutes. And so I told you that I was going to follow the lead of, uh, of my pastor, my friend, my mentor Lou, who never finishes a lesson in one week. And I didn't. So we're going to Back finish where we left off. If you need a lesson page or you want a lesson page, there are some at the back table. Uh, There will be some noise left of us and right of us as there are VBS meetings going on. I know there are several in this room who are doing that as well, Uh, including me. I I took my shirt off because uh, I stood at the door and I was evidently filtering people into homeowner's class, And I said, no, 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 one more door. So I took mine off. Uh, But that will start this week as as, as early as tomorrow. Um, I titled the talk that we looked at as Three Trees and a Quiet Breeze. Now, the three trees, I'm going to refresh us just real quick in a few minutes, Mm -hmm. is our reflection of Genesis 1 and 2 about our work. Now, we established that our work is not just for income because our work is really cradle to grave or about the time we're able to to do things simply in our own homes until well after retirement, until they put us in a box. We have work that was made for us. So we talked about these three trees. By the way, this was not my metaphor. This one, actually, the the actual three-tree metaphor came from a a pastor, a teaching pastor out in Texas called Bodhi Bauckham. I think I mentioned mentioned that to you. Uh, But we mentioned through the cultural mandate of Genesis one Genesis 2 where God asked us to work we established that work is not a condition of the fall rather our anxiety and our burden for work that is what came from the fall itself so we established what work is and then we talked about why work was important because we are image bearers what did God do for the first six days in creation he worked what did he do at the end of the sixth day? He surveyed his work, and he decided to do what on the seventh day? Right. He decided to rest. We talked about that a good bit. Uh, I'm not going to reread the Genesis 2 piece. You can look at that yourself. But those three types of trees, real quickly, the first type of tree were trees that were beautiful. And these trees were sort of symbolic. It was a word picture that crafting beauty, organizing, ordering showing excellence, improving things are all signs of beauty that God has fingerprinted on us as image bearers. The second set of trees was that they were made for food. And he didn't just say they were nutritional. He said they were good for food. I don't know about you, uh, one of my favorite things to do, uh, used to be with my daughter, uh, was to go to Wendy's and we eat the weirdest things at Wendy's. And maybe you do this, maybe you don't. But I love salty and sweet. So we would order chocolate Frosties and only hot French fries. And we would take the hot French fries that were stiff and dip them into the chocolate. And that became our little date. We did that once in a while. Love those two flavors together. All right? But they were not, they're not certainly not nutritious, but they're definitely good for food. We do more than just eat with our taste buds. We eat with our eyes. We eat with our ears. I often tell my own family, uh, Jennifer, it took a long time for her to do this, but she's a master at it. My daughter is now too. I only eat eggs that she makes, and she makes them exactly like my grandmother did. My mother couldn't even make eggs properly. She said, they all taste the same for years, she said. They all taste the same. I said, no, They don't feel the same Mm -hmm. there's about a 10 second window when a scrambled egg is perfect and if you don't take it off i throw it in the trash and start over all right because it doesn't feel good on my palate Mm -hmm. i don't care how it tastes i eat with all my senses and so do you if i talked about starting a barbecue fire and putting on a steak on a hot grill can you hear that sizzle when that beat first hits and your mouth starts watering just waiting for that so we eat With our senses. And they are good for food. So they weren't just edible. So our work in this symbol is good. And it's biblical to pay attention to the goodness of things. To do things right the first time. To respect the creation. And to protect the image bearer that will eventually glorify God. And then the third tree, the last one we looked at and reviewed, is the truth tree. This is where we look at order. We look at what's right and what is wrong. These trees symbolize what is right and what is wrong with the creation. So truth, beauty, and goodness, these are the three word pictures that should guide our workflow, whatever that is, whether we do it for pay, whether we do it, for ministry, whether we do it to honor our family, whatever that work is, whether we do it out of obedience, if you're a child, it should be to telegraph truth, beauty, and goodness. So um, our desires to grow and to explore and to organize and to repair and investigate and straighten things up and clarify, you pick your own task for they are designed as reflectors. And I believe this was God's intention. Uh, there's a couple of things that are going to uh, that are going to uh, tie this little section above, and I'll just read them to you. The, the, the sections are there. Just in the interest of time, I'll move forward. Colossians two twenty three: Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters. We'll scoop down to Ephesians two ten: For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which who prepared for us? Which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. We scoot down one more to John 6, 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Our workflow is not just to get a job done, but ultimately to glorify and then finally, 1 Corinthians 10.31, um, I think I've been with Lou, Jenny will probably correct me tell me the exact day, month, year, and time signature, but about 2002, 2003, I think is when we uh, joined him, and sort of been playing background for him for a long time. I've heard this verse under Lou's teaching more than any other verse that I can think of, and that's 1 Corinthians 10.31. If you know it, you can say it with me. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's encouraged us that way for at least, in my thinking, the last 18 years. So culture has slowly destroyed this model of what work and rest looks like. And if you remember in the last three minutes... I gave you the, uh, the Baptist alliteration of all the S's and we'll kind of unpack those a little bit farther today. So culture slowly destroyed that model of what the rhythm of work and rest are supposed to look like. Listen to what uh, Bill Gates has to say. I'm not a respecter of Bill Gates, but the rest of the world is. In a conversation with Warren Buffett, you can find it yourself on YouTube. Don't do it right now. Um, he says that busyness over work Is the new, watch for it, stupid. This is Bill Gates. This is Warren Buffett. Two notably the most successful, two of the most successful financiers on the planet. They're saying that busyness or overwork without rest is the new stupid. The Church of Jesus Christ ought to stop and pay attention. You eat the fish and spit out the bones. Is there some wisdom there? I don't know that that came from them. So I want you to listen to this piece. This is, came from, this is another quote from Ron uh, Rolheiser. This is a little bit longer quote. But I think it will begin to make some sense. Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any internal depth whatsoever we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. Pathological busyness and restlessness. That one resonates with me. And these are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. So if we look at what happened in Scripture, we are supposed to be apprentices or in the church we call it disciples. Apprentices of who? Who are we supposed to be apprentices of? Jesus. Jesus. Well, we don't use apprenticeships much anymore. There are trades and craftsmen that do. I can think of uh, plumbers and electricians and maybe silversmiths. Um, Eric, did you do a, an apprenticeship? Five years. How many years? Five years. What did you do in those five years? Can you tell us quickly? Worked on an our- under a master electrician. Worked under a what kind of electrician, guys? Master. A master. Brian Farley, did you apprenticeship when you did your HVAC work? Uh, not really. No? Who did you learn from? Uh, just working at Liberty and just working with other guys and, uh, and just picking up stuff on the job. So maybe not a formal apprenticeship, but you clearly learned under somebody who knew what they were doing. Okay, so apprenticeships, we follow someone else's lead. So instead of the word disciple, I'd like for you to reckon back to this industrial arts word of apprentice. An apprentice is someone who follows somebody else's lead, who follows their pace. All right, so there's a couple of pace-setting pieces of Scripture, and if you want to follow along here, you can. In the interest of time, I know when there are big passages nobody wants to read, including me. All right, and Lou says he likes to pan them out and point them. But we're going to go to Mark 5, uh, 21 through 36 real quick. After Jesus crossed over by boat, I think this was actually one of our portion verses this morning. A large crowd met him at the seaside. One of the meeting places was named one of the meeting place leaders was named Jarius. Or Jarius, I think some call him. When he saw Jesus, he fell to his knees beside himself and he begged, My dear daughter is at her death's door. Come and lay your hands on her to see uh, so, so she can get well and live. Jesus went with him. The whole crowd tagging along, pushing, and jousting. A woman who had suffered of a condition of hemorrhaging for 12 years, a long succession of physicians had treated her, and treated her badly, taking all of her money and leaving her worse off than she was before. And she'd heard about Jesus. She slipped in from behind and touched the robe. She was thinking to herself, If I can put my finger on his robe, I can get well The moment she did it, the flow of blood dried up. She could feel the change and knew her plague was over and done with. We advance a little farther down the piece. At the same moment Jesus felt energy discharging from him, he turned around to the crowd and asked, Who touched my robe? I'm certain it wasn't in that tone. But if you reckon the story, his disciples were basically miffed at him going, What in the world? Why do you care who touched you? Can't you see all these other people around? But Jesus was concerned about the one. He carved out a moment for this woman. And you know the story. Uh, can you imagine uh, Jairus? <laughs> what was he thinking? Hey, I just, I just tagged this guy. We're going to get her well with my daughter. And here's some other interruption. So this interruption has a lot to do with our ability to intersect with work and rest. But he went on asking, looking around him. Uh, We skip down a little farther down to verse 34. Jesus said to her daughter, You took the risk of of faith, and now you're healed. And the whole uh, you're healed and whole. Live well and be blessed. Be healed of your plague. We skip down into Luke 10, 31. You know the story. I'm not going to read the whole entire story of the Jericho Road. Somebody was beaten. Who was he? (coughs) Who was beaten? Samaritan. What happened after he was beaten? They, they left him. According to Scripture's account, they left him half dead. I don't know if he had clothes on if he was laying there bloody and naked. I'm not sure. Doesn't say. Somebody passed him by. Who was it? Levi? That was the second the one. The priest was the first one. Maybe he was in charge of the megachurch of the day. I don't know. All right, but he passed him by. The second one was the Levite. And what happened here? What did he do? He passed him by as well. The enemy of this man, probably you know the Al-Qaeda terrorist of the day, was the one who was the hero of the story. And he gave him wine and oil, which was basically the currency of the day that healed the man, that started the healing process, bound his wounds up, took him to an inn. And I read this yesterday. The money that he gave the innkeeper was essentially two months of living for the average man in his day. Two months, not two days. The scripture says two silver coins, but I looked up the value of that silver coin and it was about two months' worth. How did that happen? This man was a saver, wasn't he? That's a side note. He was a saver. He, he was good at making money, obviously. He had money to be able to spare or sacrifice for somebody else. He was the hero of the story. What did Jesus tell us to start, tell the man he was talking to about this Jericho Road story? Go and do what? Go and do likewise. This man is your neighbor. Carve out time for others. So the hero of the story was the man who slowed down long enough to help somebody in need and the man who created space in his life. And that was not an accident. It was very intentional. The one that was probably the nearest and nearest to my own heart was the story of Lazarus. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and his sister Martha. This was the same Mary who, ro- uh, who, uh, who rubbed the, uh, didn't the feet, but rubbed the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Master, the one that you love so very much is sick. So obviously Lazarus and Jesus were? Very mm-hmm. close. Were they friends? Mm-hmm. They were clearly friends. When Jesus got the message, Jesus jumped in the car, hit the freeway. Does it say that? <laughs> Does it say that? No. No. What did he do? Waited. He stayed around. Does anybody know how long he stayed around? Two, days. Two additional days. Was Jesus in a hurry? No. Was Jesus anxious? No. Was he worried? No. Now he was Jesus. So clearly he knew what was going to happen. Uh, so Jesus loved Martha and his sister, Lazarus. But oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on there for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Jesus wasn't stressed out. And the four Gospels never portray Jesus as in a hurry. They portray him as relaxed in most cases. He was present in the moment. He lived that non-hurried lifestyle. Uh, We're supposed to be, as we mentioned, we're supposed to be apprentices. And I'll use Eric's word. He said he learned electricity, and the pulling of the cable and all the pieces he learned about, about the movement of electrons from who? He master. used the M word a moment ago. What was it? Master. From the master. Our lifestyle should be mimicked after the master. So how do we match the pace of Jesus is the question we're looking at today. I like this. Uh, this is a sort of a badness number, I'm, I'm supposing. We all used to say this. I used to hear this in the 70s when I was a kid. How is your walk... With Jesus, Not your run, not your jet set, but your what? Walk. But your walk. All right? That number of a walk, a casual walk is what we want to focus on. It gives us a word picture to look at. For most of us, that means we need to slow down. We've got to slow down. Our rush to hurried pace robs us of the gift of presence to our coworkers, to our spouse to our children, to our neighbors, to even strangers, and even to our own body and our own soul. Listen to what Dallas Willard has to say about this. He says, hurry is the great spiritual enemy of life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Listen to what Corey ten Boone has to say about this. If the devil can't make you sin... He will make you busy. Does anybody know why she said that? Because busyness has the same effect on our soul as sin. I want you to think just for a moment to yourself. Don't share it with anybody else about the sin that you personally might struggle with. It could be an addiction. It could be anger. It could be overspending. It could be a million different things. When you have personally sinned and you've given in that one time and then that two and then that three, what have you actually done? You've now separated yourself from your maker. I do it, you do it, we all do it. Busyness does the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. Satan doesn't have to show up in the nice red suit that you see in the cartoons with a pitchfork. He doesn't have to do it because you did it to yourself. We failed to look at the model that was left from Genesis. And that was six days of work and one day of rest. One day of rest. And I don't even know if this is a Western problem or not, but I suspect it is a world problem as we look through this. Um, I like what this uh, This is a psychologist from last century, Carl Jung as if she's a famous psychologist, and a lot of your children's education is based on a lot of his educational research, said, hurry isn't of the devil, hurry is the devil. He is an atheist, but here he's referencing a word picture about what we know regarding the sin of the business. Here's a study from a, a Michael, his name is Zigarelli, and he's a former uh, business professor at Regent. I think he's up in Messiah College in Pennsylvania now. He spent years studying twenty thousand churchgoers worldwide, and the study's called. If you want to see it, it's called Christianity Nine to Five. I'll read you this piece real quick, and then we'll advance to the solution to the problem. Among the primary obstacles to walking as Jesus did in today's frenetic pace of, is, is today's frenetic pace of life: busyness, hurreness overload, burnout, over-exhaustion, whatever you want to call it, it's known by a lot of names. But there's one common outcome, an accelerated pace, an activity level of the modern that distracts distracts us from God and separates us from the abundant joyful victorious life that He desires for us. He identifies a pattern. I'll read this to you quickly. It may be the case that number one, Christians are assimilating a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to number two, God becoming marginalized. Now there's a kind of an odd word, it's not used often, but I want you to think of a piece of loose leaf paper. It's got three holes punched in it. When you want to write something in the margin, is that important? No, you're writing left and right of the red lines that are on that paper. It might be something you want to remember later. It might be a phone number. It might be—it could be a lot of things. But it's marginalized because it's not what—it's not really important. So number two becomes uh, God becomes more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to number three. A, deterioration, a, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to number four. Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to number five. We're now on the rat race circle. More conformity to culture of business, hurry and and then the cycle begins again. We're going to skip down in the interest of time. Uh, we've become very efficient in our lives but i want to call you to a moment in 2007 which radically changed how most of us do human things and that is the event anybody what happened in 2007 worldwide it's not just here in the u.s second smartphone was released 2007 so we're talking about 14 years and wow how life has changed the new dopamine the new drug of the world sits right here Do you get a charge by checking your email? I do. I see what's on Facebook. I see what the next Twitter feed is or Instagram. By following something that's going on. By playing a game to fill the boredom of time. We have come to a place where we are not relaxing any longer. Ultimately, our business doesn't allow us to be present with Jesus or Jesus to be present with us. It's not the phone's fault. The phone's fault. is just, it, it's, it's simply a symptom of what we see in our own hearts. So, let, let me invite you. If you don't think that we are addicted to these things, turn it off for 24 hours and put it in the doctor's drawer. drawer. i I'll wait to see how long it takes you before you start foaming the mouth. All right, try it. I have. I've done it before. We're going to skip down a little farther. Uh, we've got some things on hurry sickness that we want to we skip past, but I want you to, uh, I want you to think about this real quick. Ten signs that you're moving too fast. Spouses, keep notes for your up, for your up, for your significant other. Children, keep notes for your parents. Parents, keep notes for your kids. Does this symbolize who you are? This comes from a book called Invitation to Retreat by Ruth Barton, and this is ten signs that you are moving too quickly. Are you hypersensitive? Hmm. Are you irritable? Keep notes. Are you restless? Do you have an overworking compulsion? Are you numb to the world around you where you no longer have time for anybody? Do you use escaping behaviors like binge watching Netflix? Are you disconnected from your purpose or identity? Are you not able to attend to your own human needs like rest or eating or exercise? Do you hoard energy where you have only enough for you? And what do your spiritual practices look like? I don't know what your number was. I would probably put my own number at 7 and Jennifer would probably put it at 10 for me. (laughs) Um, But those are signs that we have a tyranny of the soul and we're doing it to ourselves. Last week, I mentioned to you that there were four or five, I think there were six on your note page ways that we can remedy this and they'll start with this, this is how we can match the pace of Jesus this has been really true for me personally over the last two months trying to heal from this drunk driver that hit me. because I've had to sit home, I've had to think I've had to reflect, I've had to slow down so these are a little more personal in my case Number one is Sabbath. Practice the discipline of rest. One out of every seven, or one-seventh of Jesus' life was spent resting and worshiping. He escaped from the crowds. He he, He isolated himself from his own friends and he went to recharge. My guess is he was not always there just doing intercessory prayer for others, but he was just marinating with his Father God. This gave him a chance to recenter, Recalibrate and remember. Number two, subtract. Remove the unnecessary garbage from your schedule. I saw uh, on that same YouTube I was referring to with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Warren Buffett pulled out his own personal schedule book, and they covered up portions where you couldn't see it. But in a whole month, he had four events. Now, I know he, he makes plenty of money. But he said he's done it for his whole life practice. is dial down to only the important stuff. Survey, distill down only those important things. Slow down. Create space to refocus, to reset, and to worship. If you remember, Lou's taught us many times that worship is bringing worth to God. When we hurry, we're sabotaging our ability to love. That's why the slow down piece is there. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about the slow down business. How you respond to interruptions is who you really are. If you're moving too fast where an interruption sets you off the track, you're moving too quickly. So pick the slow lane at the grocery store, all right? (laughs) Walk a little slower, put your phone away, Pay attention to those things that are important in your life. Number, uh, the, number five is silence. And we're 12 up on the... Practice moments with God to grapple with the hard stuff when it's only you and Him. Some of my personal favorite moments are when the power goes out at the Kirkhouse. <laughs> now, most people look at that and go... That's a crisis that I don't want to hear about. i got to call AEP or Southside Electric. It's a mess, blah, blah, blah. And, yes, we make those calls too. But when the power is out at our house, you don't even hear all the things that you normally have gotten desensitized to, mm-hmm. like the little buzzers that your little DC power ports make. They make a buzzing noise. Mm-hmm. Turn your power off today to find out they don't. It's silent when that happens. And I think I like it personally. And I don't like when the air conditioning's off. I hate that. But I do love the silence. when nothing else is around but me and God. And then finally, as we finish, simple living. Uh, This got really popularized about five, eight years ago, and that is the minimalization movement. You've heard of the tiny house movement? This is where people spend about six months of their life. Six months of their life getting rid of all the junk that they don't need. Mm -hmm. Starting over with just what they do need. It's a simple life. It's much easier to navigate. We finished the last time that I talked to you with an invitation from Jesus, and this is where we'll finish again. And that is Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. And we're done here. We're done. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. There's that walk word. And work with me. Watch how I do it. There's that apprentice model. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Let's pray. Father, in the quiet of this moment... We are grateful to be Americans. But we've clearly abused what you raised us with. Lord, we ask that this week, you bring one of those S's into focus for us. As a body. That we can start living simply. Slowing down and following your pace. To live the abundant life. And we will thank you for it